0: Okay, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 11. It is once again uh, a blessing to be able to take a a bit of a side light, uh, as it were, in... It's it's, it's not a side characteristic of the book of Jeremiah, but as we have studied, of course, uh, the book itself has been characteristically somewhat grim... And it's always a blessing when we can take the time to uh, consider a topic which is encouraging uh, in the midst of all of the sorrow and judgment and such that the book of Jeremiah presents. And as we walk through Jeremiah 11, just verses 1 through 15 this evening, we are going to study, as you see there in the title, the faithfulness of God. But we are not going to study it perhaps from the, the standard perspective. So from a ta- standard perspective, when we talk about the faithfulness of God, we come at the faithfulness of God from the best-case scenario, right? When if, if, I were to, if I were to walk through and ask each person in here tell me a bit of God's faithfulness and you were to think about something in your life uh, that is a mark of God's faithfulness I think that the majority of us if not every single one of us would come up with something positive in our life right Uh, that the Lord has provided in this way or the Lord has blessed us in this way or the Lord has healed us in this way and yet as we even sung in like a river glorious Um, every joy or trial falleth from above. We oftentimes don't necessarily or at least as quickly connect God's faithfulness to some of the harder things that take place in our lives. And yet as we study, as we learn, and then as we experience the nature of life, what we find is that God's faithfulness is just as strong in the hard times as in the easy times. As a matter of fact, the the marks of God's faithfulness and the fingerprints of his faithfulness are all over the trials of our lives, all over even the chastening of God upon our lives. And that's what we're going to see this evening. We're going to see God's faithfulness, and we're going to see it through God's Proclamations of judgment. So we begin in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 11, and the Bible tells us this the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So notice the verbal cue that indicates to us that we are likely dealing with a new message. Recall that Jeremiah was, Jeremiah didn't just sit down and write Jeremiah in one sitting and okay, he was done with it. It was written about one particular time. Jeremiah's ministry spans some 50 years of his life and he is writing the book of Jeremiah throughout the course of those. So uh, we are, we are dealing with various messages to various different people. And at various different times when we read a message we've seen some repetition we'll see it again tonight it's repetition to us because we're going from Jeremiah 7 to Jeremiah 8 to Jeremiah 9 right but who knows if between Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 8 there wasn't a full decade a full 10 years maybe they have a brand new king Maybe there's an entirely new economy that's operating. Uh, there are entirely potentially new contexts within which these things are being written. And we need to remember that. So we look for verbal cues that tell us that a certain message of Jeremiah has finished and a new message is at hand. And we see one of those verbal cues here in Jeremiah 11 verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So there is a new word from the Lord to Jeremiah. This is a, a new revelation. And, uh, we don't know if it was 10 minutes after the revelation of Jeremiah 10 or if it was 10 years after the revelation of Jeremiah 10. We have very little context within the book to orient ourselves. We're going to find out in a couple of weeks, we're going to see um, a particular message and I'm not going to, I'm not going to dwell on it, but we're going to see a particular message that is to the king. It says in our Bibles to the king and queen, but that word queen is actually the idea of the queen mother. And so it's the king and the mother who had power, his mother who had Power in the land as well, and this would lend us to uh, a certain king who, who, at the time, had a rather influential mother figure within his life, uh, who seemed to retain a good amount of power throughout his his short reign. Uh, and so we can we can try to maybe put these clues together and say maybe this is what's happening, but we really get very little context throughout the book of Jeremiah. To that end here, what we do notice is that we are dealing with a new revelation, and we need to think along those terms. A new revelation, I might expect some repetition, uh, because who knows if this is a new audience, who knows if this is a new time, who knows how many years have gone by here. So, uh, we, we have this statement, and the Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, uh, Hear ye the words of the covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah. So God's going to give the words of the covenant, and then he says, Speak these words to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That is our audience this evening. We're not talking to the nation of Israel like we've seen before. It's the men of Judah and um, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the beginning of the message is in verses 3 through 5. We read this. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice. And do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I, then answered I, this would be Jeremiah, and said, So be it, O Lord. So take note. Uh, that what we are reading here is very Israel-centric, given the complete context of the covenant. God says, read to them the covenant, and then give them this message. The covenant here, as we see it presented, we don't see the covenant presented in the text. We see the message about the covenant presented in the text. But within this message, we see which covenant is being spoken of here, right? He says, it's the covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. So what covenant was it that was commanded of the fathers when the Lord brought them out of Egypt? This is the Mosaic covenant, right? This is the covenant on Sinai, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and then continuing through uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, laying down all of the expectations of the law as it relates to the, 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 the emphasis of the law of God. Um, now, do take note of, of an important principle of the language here. It's the same thing that we have seen as it relates to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Recall that some of the interpretive problems surrounding Revelation is the day of the Lord, right? And the big question is, when does the day of the Lord take place? And in a lot of people's minds, the day of the Lord is a day. It's an event. But here, as we see this idea that the Father's, were commanded in the covenant on the day that the Lord brought them forth out of Egypt. Well, here's what we know from the book of Exodus. It was not in the same 24-hour day that they were out of Egypt, that they passed through the Red Sea, that then they were given the covenant, right? They went through the Red Sea. They left Egypt. They traveled for some time. They hit the Red Sea. The Lord parted the Red Sea. They walked through the Red Sea on the other end of the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses, and then they traveled to Mount Sinai. And then they established themselves on Mount Sinai, and then Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. And so we we have this this context wherein this word day does not mean 24 hours, but it means the time period within which they were brought out of Egypt, right? And so we see another example of how this word day can be used not necessarily as a 24-hour day, but as a period of time. Well, pastor, what does that mean for... For Genesis chapter one. Well, and that's why it is so significant that Genesis one says, and the morning and the evening were the first day. See, because you get one morning and one evening in one 24 hour day, right? Which is why we believe that the six days of creation were literal 24 hour days because it speaks of the morning and the evening. It's not the day as in a a period of time as we would see here, but a a day as in a 24-hour period of time. So uh, we see here that this covenant was given in in the time that they left Egypt. That roots us in the Mosaic covenant. And this covenant was quite plain. Now the details were many, but the essence of the covenant was this. Obey my voice and my commands and you will be my people and I will be your God. God promised to greatly bless them if they obeyed, giving them the land of great prosperity, keeping from them disease, making their women fruitful, all of these things. The land, of course, described as flowing with milk and honey. But there was another part to that covenant. If you obey, I will bless you. But don't forget that the other part of the covenant was And if you disobey, I will curse you. That was a part of the covenant as well. And that's going to become very important as we continue through the text tonight. So we see Jeremiah's reply at the end of all this He answers and says, so be it, Lord, I will do this. I will read the covenant and then I will give them this message. Now we've already spoken within the series about the nature of this covenant between God and Israel, that if they would obey God, God would bless them, that if they disobey God, God will curse them. But I would like to go back for just a moment and remember exactly what Israel knowingly entered into in the day that they were brought out of Egypt. It is not until late Deuteronomy that we really see God lay lay down his program through the blessings and the cursings and we've talked about that before but as far as the actual covenant itself we read this in Exodus 24 verses 1 through 8 and he said unto Moses that would be God come up unto the Lord thou and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship ye afar off and Moses alone shall come near the Lord And they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice, and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people... And they said, All that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Here we read the description of the time when Israel knowingly entered into the covenant with God. Moses wrote down the entire covenant, he read to them the covenant, and having read to them the covenant, they said, we will agree to this. They bound themselves, but not just their generation, but they bound the, the, the future generations of the nation of Israel to this covenant. One of the things we know from life is that we don't always get to choose our circumstances. For better or for worse, we don't choose our parents. The choices of our parents, our grandparents, maybe even generations before them affect, can affect us today. And this is one of those things. The fact is, this nation entered into a covenant with God and they did not just enter into it for themselves, but they entered into it for themselves and for every generation of their family as it would continue, as Israel would continue. As long as Israel exists as a nation, they are bound to that covenant that God that they made with God until the covenant is completely fulfilled. To that end... The people in Jeremiah's day were yet under this covenant. And they were yet feeling the effects of this covenant in their lives. As a matter of fact, that's the whole point. The whole point of all of the judgments that God was warning them about, taking them away, Chaldeans coming, destroying them, all of that was rooted in the promises of the covenant. In the, in the warnings of the covenant, in the, 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 um, the agreement that was made there on Mount Sinai. We continue in verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. So God tells Jeremiah that he needs to remind Judah of their obligation to this covenant in the streets. And he is to say to them, hear the words of this covenant and do them. God reminds the nation that he has earnestly protested to them. The idea there of earnestly protesting to them is that he told them that he would be faithful. He told them that he would keep his word. He called them to, to obey the covenant that they have entered into, not to ignore it. He has called them faithfully time and time again for generations now. Uh, we we begin reading about the the adventures of Israel after the covenant with with the book of judges right not a good way to start and so for some 450 years or so the judges uh, are 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 in control and 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 there's no king in israel and every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes and then we see the 450 years or so of the kings and things get a little better with david and solomon and then uh things kind of do a roller coaster ride through the various kings with hezekiah and josiah and these good kings uh with the smattering of evil kings in between and of course israel's a lost cause at that point the, nation, the northern tribes of Israel, what, what I mean there. But all throughout that time, what has God been doing? He's been sending prophet after prophet after prophet. He sent Elijah, and he sent Elisha, and he sent Micaiah, and he sent Micah, and he sent these prophets to the north, and he sent these prophets to the south, and, and they were to prophesy and say, remember my covenant. So God has certainly not failed to remind Israel of their obligations unto him. But the problem is that they entered into the covenant, but then they refused to obey it. They would not incline their ear to the Lord. They would not listen. That's the idea. You incline your ear. You tip your ear toward the direction of the person speaking. You're listening to them. God says you wouldn't listen. Instead, you walked after the imagination of your own evil heart. Therefore, God says... Therefore, he will bring upon them all the words of this covenant. He will hold them accountable. He will hold them to their word. He will be faithful to his promises. You realize that God's promises, they were positive promises. Obey me and I'll give you this and I'll bless you there and you won't be barren and you won't have plagues and you'll have fruitful and there won't be famines and and, and your enemies won't be able to, to destroy you. But he also made promises toward the negative. Disobey me, and I'll curse you, and all the plagues will come upon you, and your women will be barren, and I will scatter you from the land. These are just as much the promises of God as these. Right? So God says, I will bring about my promises. Now, the passage we just read in Exodus speaks of the day they entered into the covenant. It is, as I mentioned before, later... In Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, that we see God say everything that would happen, his blessings and his cursings, that would be upon them. To this end, we see not only these positive promises that relate themselves to God's faithfulness, but these negative ones. And this is a very important uh, concept to understand. Under this context, if the nation disobeys the covenant and God does not bring upon them the consequences of disobeying the covenant, that would make God unfaithful. Literally, God has to punish them or else God is a liar. Literally, God has to bring these things upon the nation or else God is not being faithful to them because He made this promise to them. He made this covenant with them. He told them, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey me. He has to. He's bound to do it because he has to be faithful. And so, to this end, God will bring upon them the words of this covenant. And to this end, God will be faithful to the covenant he made with them. So we continue in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. So God declares a conspiracy in the land. The idea of a conspiracy here is an unlawful alliance. That's uh, the general idea of a conspiracy is that it is an alliance, but it is one that is not right. It is not a virtuous alliance. It is not a, an alliance unto the good of one's master, but an alliance unto unto ill. And the conspiracy is this, that the men of the land have, have come together to turn their backs on uh, on God, that they have turned back to the sins of their fathers, they have persisted in the refusal of the nation to obey the word of God they 've served other gods, and all of this comes to a startlingly blunt conclusion that they have broken god 's covenant. We humans struggle when it comes to absolutes as it relates to um, our own lives and and, and our, our lack of virtue. In other words, we struggle to say plainly what is a plain fact when, when, when it comes to our own faults. In other words, politicians don't lie. They misspeak, right? I can't tell you how many times we've heard that over the last year. Uh, so-and-so says something, blatantly says something. It's blatantly false, and then they get up later and say, yes, I, I misspoke. I misspoke. Well, no, you lied. You knew what was right. You said what was not right. You got caught in it. You lied. No, no, I misspoke. We don't tell white lies or we, we, we say we tell white lies, but, but in fact they're outright lies. We we don't deceive people. We, we, we just We just mislead a little bit, right? We like to kind of lower the, the verbiage of our, own, um, of, of our own failures. And yet here we see God, and he's not beating around the bush. He's not telling the nation, well, you, you haven't really lived up to what you said you would do. He's not telling the nation, well, you, you've, you've kind of fallen short of your goals here. You know, those are really nice ways of saying it. God, God has come up and he said, look, you broke my covenant. There was a covenant. You knew what you were supposed to do. You didn't do it. You failed. You you rebelled. You disobeyed. You broke my covenant. God is being very blunt here, and he has to be very blunt here. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense but they shall not save them at all. In the, in the time of their trouble. So God says, this is what's going to happen. I am going to bring evil upon them. I'm going to bring evil upon them and they are going to begin to suffer and they will cry unto me and I will not hear them and then they'll go crying unto their gods. They'll go stand in front of that wooden statue or that golden statue and they'll cry to that thing and that thing will just do what it always does, which is stand there with the same look on its face and, and, and not move and, and not respond and not do anything because it can't do anything because it's just a hunk of wood, right? So they're not going to help you either. They can't save you. Only I can save you is what God is saying here. Verses 13 and 14. For according to the number of thy cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or a prayer for them for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. These verses should sound very familiar to you. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 28, God told the cities the exact same thing, that according to the number of cities, so is their God. So if you don't have it in your Bibles and you write cross-references, definitely write down Jeremiah 2, 28, because it's a verbatim statement. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, God had already commanded Jeremiah not to pray for the people because he is not going to hear his prayers. We see the exact same thing here in verse 14. Uh, so, so Jeremiah eleven fourteen 14 corresponds to Jeremiah 7, 16, both times in which God says to Jeremiah, don't even waste your breath praying for this people because it's no use. He will say the same thing again in Jeremiah 14. We'll see it in a few weeks. God will again say, don't pray for this people. Take note again that though we are reading repetitive concepts, sometimes only a couple of chapters apart, these could be years apart in Jeremiah's life, Right? So God saying, don't pray for this people in Jeremiah 7, it might be 15 years later that God's telling them, him in Jeremiah 11 not to pray for these people again, right? So just remember that. Keep, keep that uh, in, in your mind. Keep, keep that perspective. Now, all of these words of judgment, they're very harsh. We've seen throughout, God, however, and this is important, God takes no pleasure in this. God's not telling Jeremiah not to pray for the people because God is just itching to destroy the people, right? God is not saying that he is going to drop the hammer because God has just been waiting, counting the days to where they would break his covenant just enough to drop the hammer, right? We're not, we, we don't serve a God that's in heaven uh, with, with like a, a mouse trap. And he's just waiting for us. You know, we'll, we'll poke our nose into sin. He's like, ah! If I get him now, it's just going to get their nose. And then we get a little, we're almost there. And he's just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then we get our next, and he's like, ha ha ha! And he just slams it down, and we snap, and we die. He's not like that, right? That's not God. God is not itching to judge us, but, but, God will judge. In faithfulness. So in verse 15, I'm sorry, it says 15 and 16. It's just verse 15 up here. In verse 15, we see this. We see that God is yet, he yet loves this people. Notice what he says. What hath my beloved to do in mine house? Seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee. When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. What hath my beloved to do in my house? The question here, and, and his house here is the temple, says, why are you even coming into the temple? What good is it for you to come into my house? You have no legitimate purpose there. You only come in to make things worse. Every time you come in, you just bring your filth into my house is what God is saying here. When you do evil, you rejoice. There's no repentance. So why are you even here? But notice that though he's saying, why are you even in my house? Notice what he calls the nation. My beloved. This is not God saying, I hate you. This is God saying, I love you. So repent, right? Now this is going to finish our time in our text this evening. Um, We'll pick up in, in verse 16 next week and go all the way through the end of Jeremiah 12. But we do have an application to make. Just one application this evening, but we're going to take some time on it. And the application is this. Never forget that God's chastening is as much a reflection of his faithfulness as God's blessings. All throughout the scripture, we are given reminders that God is faithful. We sing that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sang just a little while ago like a river glorious is god's perfect peace and as i've mentioned several times already that final verse every joy or trial falleth from above traced upon our dial by the god of love when we appeal to god's faithfulness we appeal to god's answered prayers we appeal to god's provisions and this is rightfully so i look at my own life and i see the marks i of God's faithfulness and as I think of the marks of God's faithfulness I think of the house that he provided for us which is a a house that we could never afford except that the Lord did something miraculous and wonderful for us I see the two vehicles that we drive both of which were given to us and are in great shape and should provide for for many years barring more children at least, because um, we, uh, we are full up on seatbelts. Uh, I see uh, the, the health of our children, and I see these things. And, and, and that is, you know, those are the things when I think of the marks of God's faithfulness. And these are indeed marks of God's faithfulness. But what of the day that we wander from God and He chastens us back to Himself? What of the day when we're suffering because we've wandered from the Lord because we're not doing what he's asked us to do because we're walking in rebellion and so things aren't easy and on that day is God's faithfulness still there? Well, yes. That chastening is God's faithfulness, is it not? What of the day when we tell God no and so God spanks us? Metaphorically speaking. What of the day when we ask God for something, we ask and we receive not because we've asked amiss that we may consume it upon our own lusts. Is that not God's faithfulness? In those times, what do we think of God? In those times, what are the defining characteristics that come to our mind as it relates to God? We say, God, what are you doing? God, why aren't I getting what I want? God, why, why, why are these things happening to me? In reality, all of these instances are as much a reflection of God's faithfulness as any answer to prayer, as any protection or provision God is faithful. What that means is that we can rely upon Him. We can rely upon Him to react a certain way to our obedience. But we can also rely upon Him to react a certain way to our disobedience. We can rely upon Him to act a certain way toward those things that we do in His will. And we can also rely upon God to act a certain way toward those things that are not according to His will. And this is a blessing because this allows us to know his will better this allows us to understand him better this allows us to see his working even in the hard times we find a, a statement of, of such in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 the bible says this it is a faithful saying For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. If we be dead with him... And that the Spirit of God baptizes us into Christ's death, the moment that we believe, we shall also live with Him, right? God is faithful. If we die to ourselves by accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we know, because God is faithful, that we will also live with Him, right? The, the reality of God's resurrection means we will live too. If we suffer, that is, if we deny ourselves and live in a manner that denying ourselves, denying our, our denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Right. Uh, as Titus says, if we live in a manner that pleases God at the expense of the world's favor and benefits, this is what we know, that in doing so, we will store up treasure in heaven. We will also reign with him. This is a mark of God's faithfulness. We depend upon this, but it goes the other way, right? So if we place our full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved because God is faithful. If we yield the blessings and comforts of this life in deference to the promises of the life to come, we will be rewarded because God is faithful. But what about if we go the other way? What about if we deny Him? God is faithful. If we deny Him, He will deny us. With whatsoever you meet, it will be meted. Judge not, lest ye be judged. We talked about that a little bit this morning. If we reject the revelation of God, God will reject us. Now, this is not a salvation statement. I mean, yes, those that deny the revelation of God unto salvation will be rejected on on the day, right? But this is also speaking of if we deny the objective word of God, then there will be a darkness that comes upon us. We've talked about this before. If we believe not, whether we believe him or not, whether we believe he's there or not, whether we regard him or not, God is just as faithful to respond to our unbelief as He is to respond to our belief. God is faithful whether we believe it or not. God is there whether we believe it or not. And God is faithful to react to us according to our actions toward Him. This statement can be considered, of course, in two ideas. The first one we hear from the religious unbelieving world The religious unbelieving world is very intent upon the blessings of God. They are religious people, but they do not have faith. They are attempting to earn their way into favor with God. They are religious people. They do things that they think will please God in order to earn a standing with God, in order to earn heaven and these sorts of things. We see this in the Christian legalistic world as well, those who uh, have begun in the spirit but are attempting to be made perfect by the flesh, as Galatians says. In both of these, they they often regard God's faithfulness positively, but we see a a breakdown of God's faithfulness negatively. Have you ever spoken to uh, an unbeliever, maybe a religious unbeliever, who is sure that God will bless them for doing good? That they do good things because they, they want the good things that come from that. But they have never actually thought about how God responds to their evil. They give themselves the benefit of the doubt. And when it comes to the good things, they say, well, God has to bless me for those. But then when it comes to the bad things, they say, well, you know, God's a God of love and he'll just ignore that. This is the same thing in Christian legalistic circles, things like the Hebrew Roots Movement and such, where they elevate the law, the Old Testament law, and they say that we need to submit ourselves to the Old Testament law. And what is fascinating is I've never met anybody who believes that we need to submit ourselves to the Old Testament law in order to reap the blessings of that who has ever believed as much in the negative blessings or in in the curses as they have with, with, with the promises. Right? I hope I'm making myself clear here. Most of the people in these camps, they say, we need to submit ourselves to the Old Testament law to reap the blessings of God. But when they don't submit themselves, when they fail, when they falter, they certainly do not expect to reap the curses. They don't expect to be plagued. They don't expect to have barren wounds. So they'll appeal to the positive blessings, but they'll never appeal to the negative cursings. But God is faithful. Now I'm not saying this to mock these people or anything of the sort. I'm simply attempting to reflect a natural human tendency which in, in the sense of the unbeliever or the legalistic believer becomes very obvious but which also can reflect itself in our lives. How often do we see the chastening hand of the Lord upon us and think that that is actually God's faithfulness to us? How often have we depended upon God's faithfulness when our prayer is not answered to remind ourselves that we, in fact, are missing something? We're missing something. See, if we know the Word of God properly and we position ourselves to live under its guidance and direction, then not only will God's faithfulness be evidenced in the positive things, but God's faithfulness will be evidenced in the negative things as well. So, as I just mentioned, because God is faithful... When God doesn't give me what I ask for in prayer, because God is faithful, that can set me on a path of discovery. Okay? Because God is faithful, and the Bible says that God delights in giving good things to his children, I know that God did not refuse my prayer because he doesn't like me, or because he's being moody that day, or anything like that. That's why parents, you know, sometimes don't give their kids things. Because they're being moody or because they're, they're, they're whatever. And they, 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 you know, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. But that, God doesn't do that. So I know that he wants to give good things to me. I know he wants to bless me. So I can take that off the table immediately, right? Because God is faithful. Well, this faithfulness of God helps, helps me navigate why I didn't get what I asked for. Maybe it's the James 5 ye have not because ye ask not ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own lust well God is faithful he didn't give me what I wanted he didn't give me what I asked for he wants to give good things to those that ask him which means maybe it's not a good thing maybe I'm asking to consume it upon my own lust maybe I'm asking in abject selfishness and God will faithfully not give it to me then right? that's God's faithfulness it, maybe it's because i'm not asking according to his will as is explicitly mentioned in 1st john 5:14 if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us maybe i'm not asking in alignment with his character or maybe i'm not asking in alignment with his timing but I can use the fact that God is faithful, and because God is faithful, He doesn't just arbitrarily not answer my prayers. He doesn't just arbitrarily not give me the things I'm asking for. There is a reason. Maybe it's not best for me. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe He has something better along the way. Maybe I'm asking for the right thing in the wrong way. In other words, uh, Nathaniel mentioned this um, last week as as uh uh hannah had brought up the idea that uh please pray that that the first of our good news club sessions could be on a, a, on tuesday that i don't work and 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 the response was well maybe the prayer should be for strength in the midst of the possibility right of having to work on on one night and still do the good news club the next maybe it is that when the lord does not answer our prayer in a specific way it's because we're asking within the right realm but we're not asking for the right thing within that realm in other words maybe god does not want to give us the day off maybe god just wants to empower us within the the difficulty of the day so, maybe we just need to change the context of our prayer for the same thing that we desire, if that makes sense. I can ask all of these questions. I can go down this path of discovery. I can learn how to ask God for things for one reason and one reason only because God is faithful even when I'm not getting what I expect, even when I'm not getting what I want. And because I know that God is faithful, that allows me to take these things not as an offense or an affront, but instead as a means by which to draw closer to God. And then I can thank God. God, thank you that when I was on my knees begging for that thing that I wanted, that you didn't give it to me because it's quite clear that I shouldn't have had it. And you knew that and you were faithful. Sometimes that comes in hindsight. But if we have, as we learn and as we grow... It doesn't have to be a hindsight thing. As we learn and as we grow, if we get down on our knees and we ask for something and it doesn't come to pass, we can immediately say, thank God, this is His will, and I can move, I can move on. And we'll, we'll see an example of this in just a few minutes. The spirit of what we're speaking of, or what, what I've been speaking of this evening, is reflected well in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we see a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Uh, but I'm going to begin in, in Hebrews 12, verse 5. We'll see this quote throughout. The Bible says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. This is Proverbs 3, 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, excuse me. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he of whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily... For a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Do you see the argument Paul is making here as he quotes from the wise King Solomon in Proverbs 3? don't despise the chastening hand of God when you do wrong. So we talked about prayer already and we talked about how the very faithfulness of God and not answering our prayers can be a tremendous blessing to us. It can keep us from, we we wanted something but it was actually not what we really wanted. It's what we thought we wanted but not and it can keep us from that. It can guide us into deeper elements of His will. It can do all of these things for us. Now we're talking about the chastening hand of the Lord that when I'm walking contrary to the will of the Lord, when I'm walking contrary to to, uh, um, the desire of the Lord for my life, he actually brings about chastening in my life. He brings about circumstances that are not pleasant to draw me back to him. And Paul says here, don't despise that. Don't be angry at that because the chastening hand of God is actually a sign that God loves you. The chastening hand of God is a sign that God cares for you, because if God didn't care for you, then he wouldn't waste his time chastening you. If you weren't one of his children, and granted, God loves the whole world, right? We know that. But the idea here is that that father-son relationship that is only found in those that have accepted Christ as their Savior, those are the ones that God chastens back to himself because you have that special relationship with God. It indicates that he cares for you. It indicates that you're one of his. And while no one enjoys chastening, Paul says here to these Hebrews, yet you have thanked your fathers for it, haven't you, in the flesh? You've thanked your fathers that they chastened you because it kept you out of trouble. It grew you in character and made you into the person that you are. And if you'll thank your your." your earthly fathers for the chastening, how much more ought you to thank your heavenly father when he deems fit to bring into your life trials? How much more ought ye to thank your heavenly father when he sees fit to, to draw you into trial and tribulation for the sake of making you more like himself, for the sake of drawing you unto greater heights of holiness? No one enjoys the chastening of God. What we know is However, is that the chastening of God is deliberate and calculated to make us better, to bring about an expected end, that being the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. On the contrary, Paul says if you experience no chastening, then you need to really question some things. If you can sin without repentance and without chastening, then you had better be concerned. Because since God is faithful, right? Because God is faithful. If God's faithfulness to chasten his children is not being realized in you, then you are not one of his children. And so, in the midst of chastening, we can get down on our knees and we can say, God, because you are faithful, you are chastening me. And that means two things number one, I'm yours. And number two, it means you're trying to make me better. And so in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that tribulation, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that anguish, in the midst of that pain, you can actually get down on your knees and you can say, God, thank you. Because through this, you are making me better. Through this, you are drawing me to yourself. Through this, you're making me more like your son, Jesus Christ. Through this, I can be more like you and you're faithful and I know it so thank you if we did not know God was faithful it would be very difficult to thank him in the times of trial because we would not know whether he was just being fickle whether or not he was just being moody whether or not he just felt like it's, it's, it's time to drop the hammer on this, this group this time uh, wh- whether or not well you know I did this last time and God was fine with it but this time he's not fine with it because I can't peg God's character thank God he's not like that He's faithful, even in his chastening, even in the negative consequences. And we need that, and, and this is essential to our relationship with him. To this end, when I see the chastening hand of God, I don't rejoice in the chastening hand of God in, itself because that means I'm walking contrary to God's design. That means I'm, I'm in, a, in the midst of suffering. It's no fun, right? But I can rejoice that God has kept his promises, that God is faithful, which of course means if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul said the same thing. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6 through 10. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that he heareth of me. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul is not speaking here of chastening, is he? So we talked about prayer. Then we talked about chastening. What about this one? What about this one? Paul says, I'm a gifted man. I have many gifts. The Lord has blessed me. And in order that I don't get too big for my britches, in order that I don't get too exalted with pride, God has brought something into my life that is miserable to keep me humble. And Paul says, I asked the Lord three times that it would depart from me, and God said, no. I'm going to let you keep it. And it's in my faithfulness because my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, if you want my perfect strength in your life, then you have to submit yourself to this weakness. And Paul says, wow, if this is the faithfulness of God, if this is where I can realize the strength of God the most, if this is where the power of God can be most magnified in my life, then I will not only tolerate this, this sorrow, I will not only tolerate this malady, I will not only tolerate this, this, this handicap upon me, but I will glory in it. I will rejoice in it. I will make it my crown and my glory because that is where the power of Christ rests strongest upon me. So in my infirmities, I will take pleasure. In my reproaches, I will take pleasure. When I don't have enough to eat that day, I will rejoice in it. When I am being persecuted, I will joy in it. Not because I like it, but because these are the reflections of a God who is seeking to keep me in the center of His will and keep me in the center of His empowerment of my life and that's what I want for this life and God is faithful so I can be content each one of these trials that Paul speaks of he relates to a reflection of God's faithful perfect choice for Paul that every joy or trial falleth from above traced upon our dial by the son of love Paul knew that he could be no, he could be in no better place than having the power of God upon him, and that the power of God was magnified in him in his weakness, so he gloried in his weaknesses. They were the best thing in his life, because that's where the power of God found its, its efficacy in his life. One last example, and then we'll be finished this evening just to drive the point home. Let's talk about our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 42. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little far, further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Jesus is praying in the hours prior to his crucifixion and he gets down on his knees and he asks the Father, if there be any possible way that I can fulfill your will without having to go through what I'm about to go through, not just physically, but the idea of the Lord placing the wrath of of God for all of our sin upon him, He says, if there's any way that I can get away with not drinking this cup, that this cup may pass from me, let it be so. But of course, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Why? Why would he pray that at the end? Because he knows that what God has chosen for him, what the Father has chosen for him is best, because the Father is faithful. Faithful. He is about to suffer. He's about to be falsely accused. He's about to be beaten and lashed and bruised and torn and mocked and scorned. And then he is about to bear the sin of the entire world, though he had done nothing wrong, though he was the innocent lamb and without blemish and without spot. And he says, and yet I will bear this if I must, if you want me to, because this one thing I know, you are faithful. And so he comes back and he prays a second time and he says, if this cup may not pass away except I drink it. If this cup is going to remain in front of me until I drink it, then thy will be done. I will drink this cup. Because he had full confidence that this suffering was going to redound to his best because God is faithful. God tells the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 11 that he's going to judge them as a curse because they have broken his covenant. We read this and we see in this judgment. We see in this the heavy hand of God upon His people. But you know what else we need to see in this? God's faithfulness. I've been faithful to bless you when you've obeyed me. And I will be faithful to curse you when you disobey me, He says to the nation. The covenant had been made over 1,000 years prior, had been ignored by the nation, but God had not forgotten it because God does not forget God made a promise. If you obey me, I will bless you. But he also made a promise. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And as this comes to pass throughout the book of uh, of Jeremiah, what we see come to pass bears the marks of the faithfulness of God, faithfulness to his promises, faithfulness to his people whom he loves. And from this, we can learn this lesson in our own lives. We can get down on our knees and praise the Almighty God that each mark along the way, every joy or trial which He traces upon our dial, is a mark, both positively and negatively, is a mark, bears the marks of God's faithfulness to us, an accurate reflection of the promises He made in His Word, and to that end, we can see in it the glory of the God that we serve.